Welcome to the Golden Age of Cardboard podcast, where we remember a time when stacks of cards were held together with rubber bands and Mickey Mantles were put in bike spokes. We hope you will enjoy and reminisce as you come along with us as we tell stories about the baseball cards from the Golden Age of Baseball. We will examine the state of the vintage baseball card market and talk to some of the greatest collectors in the hobby. You won't be hearing us talk about any chrome or shiny cards here. Now, to take you on this retrospective journey, here's your host, direct from the shallow end of the gene pool, my son, Mike Moynihan. Yo and hello everybody, Mike here, Golden Age of Cardboard podcast. Welcome to another episode. And, uh, you know, as I record this, getting ready uh, for this episode that's going to be this week, it's it's three weeks from when the National is going to be, like three weeks from today, the show will be starting. And I'm super excited and and can't wait for that. It's always the, the it's almost like the anticipation and the lead up is almost greater than the event itself. That's not really true, but it's like, you get so amped up and then the show happens and it's over and you're like, ah, I got to wait 12 more months, but it, time goes fast, especially the older I get. I find that the <laughs> father time is catching me faster and faster every day. Today, I'm going to talk to uh, a guy that's been in the hobby a really long time, Mike Summer from Wax Packs Hero, Wax Pack Hero. <laughs> you always want to do Wax Packs, but it's Wax Pack Hero podcast. Uh, I've listened to Mike for a long, long time. We'll tell you a little story here in a minute, but we're going to talk about the different ways to hobby and how to enjoy this hobby. And it's 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 beyond vintage. It's kind of beyond everything. But I think if, if you're a vintage collector, this will matter to you as much as if you're a modern collector, because it's just how how you to approach the hobby. And Mike and I have different ways that we approach the hobby. And so I'm excited to talk to him about it. I'm going to bring him on right now and we will get going. Mike Summer, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? I am excited to be here on the inaugural edition of On the Fly with Mike and Mike. Forget <laughs> Ty. We have Mike and Mike tonight. That's right. And you know that that does uh, that may sell that Mike and Mike thing. Maybe somebody's done that before. I don't know. On radio, Mike and Mike, and Mike in the evening. I don't think that one's been done. That's true. Mike and the Mike in the morning certainly was one of my favorite shows. I listened to forever, and then Greeny got all ego and left and left Golick all hanging in the balance. But anyway, uh, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here because we do do things different. But uh, before we get into that topic, you know, it's I think it's funny. Yeah, I have you to thank for this, for having Golden Age of Cardboard in large part because two years ago, about this time of year, we uh, I interviewed you and John Newman from Sports Card Nation about content creation and making podcasts. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I was uh, honored to be a part of the first uh, hobby palooza that we did. And it was the first time you and I had actually had a chance to chat. And so, um, yeah, it was a, it was a good time. I learned so much from John when I first got started, you know, he had, he'd been around, you know, several months longer than me. And I, I, I picked his brain a lot as I was getting started podcasting. And then, um, yeah, it's one of the things I just love to do is talk about uh, content creation as well and, and why I do what I do and, and how there's room for all of us to do it. And so, yeah, it was, it was 
it was cool to be a part of that show and and i'm glad that it somewhat inspired you or or whatever to to move beyond just the the video content into the the podcasting content as well well it's funny because uh ty was supposed to do that interview and he had something else going on so i had to kind of fill in in the moment and i'm like i don't do podcasts i i love i hadn't even really listened a ton to podcasts honestly before that i was a youtube consumer and then i started listening i before that knowing i was going to do that i went oh frantically like let me look these guys up like i don't even know who these guys are and started listening to a few things and then started listening in my car and now it's pretty much all i listen to in my car is there's three or four podcasts five podcasts maybe uh, dr beckett's yep. yours john's uh flagship podcast you know i found that there's not a ton of hobby podcasts out there even still i mean there's a few and i said i want to do one on vintage i'm like i would love to do that but i had no idea how like mm -hmm. everybody kept telling me oh you should do a podcast i'm like that's great but i wouldn't even know where to start well then the bench clear thing happened ty had has a long history of doing podcasts yep. uh for breaker culture and for his channel breaker culture and i was like okay and then i picked y'all's brain so if you don't like golden age of cardboard it's his fault <laughs> uh you can blame mike no uh y'all were a great inspiration to me for sure and just it, it really made me go okay I, I was really like if these dorks can do this then i can certainly do this that's kind of really no, no that's how it is with all of us in the in the <laughs> hobby right it's it's if if those us card cardboard nerds can uh can do something that some people find enjoyable then then pretty much anybody can do it if you're passionate about what you're talking about well in those two years i've consumed just about every podcast that you've put out there and one resonating theme that you tend to talk about often is building a sustainable hobby. What I'd like you to do first is maybe define what that is in your mind. And then I'll and then we'll talk a little bit later about how that's different from the way I hobby, always from the standpoint of there's no wrong way to hobby, right? It's, yep. it's you, you do you, but at the same time, there might be some nuggets of wisdom that you can, you know, impart on some people on how to make their hobby experience maybe a little more, uh, a little bit better. Yeah, I'd, and the only caveat I'd say there is the only wrong way to hobby is if you're using money that needs to be going towards family commitments, your house, you know, going into debt sure. to buy cards and, and those types of things. I would categorize that as the wrong way to hobby. But that all kind of also rolls into what I why I do things the way that I do them, why I like to try to, to say that I have a self-sustaining hobby. And it kind of goes back to when I got back into the hobby in 2016. And I started to get a feel for the lay of the land. So much had changed from when I was a kid, right? You you weren't able to go to, to Sam's Club and buy a wax box for $16 or, or whatever, right? Oh, I remember was, those days. It was, was 50 or 100 or $150 for the even the flagship type products and even more than that for high-end products. And it didn't take me too long to realize that if I wanted to collect the way that I wanted to collect... I was going to need to do something to offset some of that cost. And, and I'd always had somewhat of an entrepreneurial streak. And so it, it wasn't too long before I started digging through the dime boxes, quarter boxes, dollar boxes at our L LCS. And I was finding some nuggets that I knew could sell for a dollar or two dollars or five dollars or ten dollars on eBay. 
And so I started to dabble in some of that and I was starting to find some success generating some extra profits. It started out as 20, 40, $50, hundred dollars a month that I was able to generate selling some of these, these cards. And then I was able to use that to cover the cost of the top series one box that was coming out or the series two box that was coming out or a stadium club box that was coming out or whatever it was that I wanted to open and have some fun with. And as I started to do that, I was like, Hey, I'm able to buy and sell some things. And then I'm able to use those profits to totally cover the cost of the things that I want to buy for fun and things that I want to buy to add to my collection. And I don't have to use any of my paycheck money or any of the, the normal quote unquote budget from my day-to-day job or family budget or whatever you want to call it to do that. And that both allowed me to scratch that entrepreneurial itch, add cards to my collection essentially for free. And I could totally avoid that, that conversation that maybe we, we joke about from time to time about how much are you spending when you have that conversation with your spouse, right? And I found that I was having so much fun buying and selling so that I could make some profits to use towards cards that I wanted to add to my own collection, that that just enhanced the enjoyment that I was having, knowing that I was building this collection essentially for free. And at the end of the day, I still had this great collection of, of cards and sets and everything that I was building that essentially cost me nothing other than my time and effort, which I was enjoying along the way. Yeah, I know we got straight into the topic because I just find it fascinating, this whole self-sustaining hobby idea. But you've been, like you mentioned, you collected as a kid, took a break, right, as an adult yep. and started collecting again six or seven years ago, right? Yep, yep. Okay. Um, I want that to be the backdrop that, you know, it doesn't matter when you come into the hobby, you'll probably have some sticker shock if you've been out for a while, right? And you're yep. like, whoa this is not my my hobby when I was a kid. Um, and again, my experience was different because I've been in the hobby the whole time for 40 sure. years straight. And so I saw it, but it was, it's like if you have a, like, you know, your, your niece or something or nephew and you see them when they're kids and it's like five years till you see them again, you go back, Oh my gosh, you've changed a lot. You know, they've grown up or whatever. And that's how the hobby can pass you by. If you're living with your kids, you don't notice the the incremental change in your kids. But if your kids aren't seen by someone for years, they go, wow, he's changed a lot. And I think that's what our, our different experiences created was I just, it was just was part of it for me. But you said something that you enjoy it. And I find that interesting. Did you enjoy the hunt for like, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find some gems today. Was it only at LCSs? Were you doing it on eBay? Were you doing it on other platforms? Were you I'm asking a lot of questions at once, but it all ties into, you know, the enjoyment was the hunt and going, man, I know what this can go for. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I think that's that hits on a couple things. And one, to do what I do, you have to enjoy putting in the work to buy, organize, sort, list and pack and ship, right? Like you have to enjoy that. And some people just hate it. Some people want no part of that, right? And that's totally cool. And (laughs) I get that that part of why there's there's different approaches. I don't mind it because I enjoy so much that idea of discovering something that somebody felt was not worth anything 
and turning that into like finding a market for that, finding a, a collector who wants to add that to their PC and turning it into something of value. And that, that gets to my second point of, of part of what I enjoyed is when I got back into it, I was all about building sets because that's what I did when I was a kid, right? And one of the first things I learned is that the general consensus within the hobby is that base and insert cards are trash and are worthless. And set builders are old school. Nobody does that anymore. And so I was able to start building these sets that I wanted to build it as I was getting back into it so cheap yeah. because it I was, was very buying bulk lots of base and insert cards for almost yeah. next to nothing, right? Like pennies or half pennies a piece. And so as I was doing that, I ended up with a whole bunch of doubles as I was buying these big lots of base and insert cards. And so that's kind of how I got started in the reselling is because I put together my set. I'd have a few hundred extra cards from that set and I found sport lots and started to list them on sport lots. And, you know, I was turning these cards I was paying a half a cent a piece for or whatever because they were worthless and turning them into 18 cents to a dollar a piece. And Again, that started with with making an extra 50 bucks or 100 bucks a month that I was able to then use to cover the cost of either these bulk lots or or new sealed wax. And so it, it stemmed from my enjoyment of putting together all of these sets. And then that enjoyment of me feeling like, hey, somebody thought this was worthless stuff that I was able to buy thousands of cards for 30 bucks or whatever it was, and then turn that into hundreds of dollars later on. I just enjoyed that so much that it, it just added to the the um, excitement that I got when I was building these sets, knowing that I was doing it from what somebody thought was just junk. Yeah, uh, it ties in a little bit to a concept that I call found money, right? Yeah. If you and you're not really finding the money. I mean, you're working hard yeah. to generate this profit. So I'm not trying to belittle the effort that it takes to make this work and be sustainable. I think enjoying all of those aspects that you mentioned the pieces of the pie to make this work is important uh, you're not going to love every bit of anything you do right but sure. but the reality is you need to at least tolerate it to know what's on the other end of that is a really cool card that i can add to my pc or a set that i can add or different things that you might want to do and so i you know you're right about the like the 2010s especially i remember being very hit centric you know, it was, I'd see guys come into the LCS, they'd buy a box of cards, they would pull out the hits and literally give all the rest of the cards back to the shop here, just take all the, I don't even want them at my house, you know, yep. base cards, even color, you know, back then parallels and stuff, inserts and everything. And they, yeah, just take them. I don't, I just want the one or two Jersey cards or one autograph or whatever I pulled from this box, which to me was very short-sighted because now kind of came full circle and base and inserts became popular. It became cool again to own base cards of rookies. And, you know, that all started basically with the Aaron judge. I think yep. 2017 was kind of when that, was that his year? 2016, maybe 2017. Yeah. 27. I was right. The first time that's a miracle. Um, so that ushered in a different era, right. That we, that we're still seeing today. Although I think it's waning, honestly, I think the base card because of the, junk slab era that we're in now, I think of everybody grading everything under the sun is making, it's diminishing the value of the base card, which I, I think is sad, by the way, I, I'm not a proponent of that, but I don't control how that happens in the hobby. It just happens whether I care or not. 
So you, you mentioned the entrepreneurial itch. Um, that's developed for you, not just it's beyond sports lots and COMC or wherever you might send cards. I mean, you now have a brick and mortar shop, right? Yeah. So it, everything just continued to grow, right? It started from buying those, those, you know, dollar box, quarter box, you know, dime box type cards. And eventually that continued to grow. Um, the LCS that, that was in our area, he eventually said, Hey, you've been buying a lot of these collections from me. You should come to one of the local shows. I've got, I've got extra space at the tables that I get. You should set up with me and, and start to set up at this, at this local show. And so I started doing that. And the first, first show, I think I took three, two, three, three row boxes or something worth of, of cards all low end. And I made like 75 bucks for the day or whatever. And I was thrilled. I just had so much fun. I'd never done anything like that before. And that just continued to, to set up, you know, and, and grow from there. So I started to set up on my own and have my own tables. Um, our LCS had um, kind of expanded, doubled his space. He does a lot of magic, the gathering tournaments and things like that. And so there was a kind of a, a whole section of the shop that was just tables where people came and played magic and that type of thing. Well, once a month, we started hosting a small local show um, with, you know, five, six dealers and, you know, maybe 12 to 20 tables, something like that. And I started doing that every month um, and was building relationships and continued to grow my inventory over time. And then in 2020, um, that same shop, as he took over, there was kind of a dedicated space that was kind of the foyer entryway area of the, the kind of neighboring storefront. And one of the other local collectors had been kind of renting that space as kind of a shop within a shop setup um, for a couple of years. And in 2020, when COVID hit, that guy decided uh, that when things were ready to reopen, he he was just kind of done. He had kind of it was kind of a side deal for him as well. And he didn't want to do it anymore. And he approached me and said, Hey, would you be interested in buying me out and kind of taking over this kind of secondary shop or the shop within a shop set up? And I said, you talked with my wife and we kind of discussed it and said, you know what, let's give it a shot and see, see what we can do. And so since the summer of 2020, I've been running kind of a part-time LCS as a shop within a shop of kind of the main, main LCS in our town. And so I'm only open on the weekends, but I've got my own dedicated space um, there where I kind of operate independently from him. And, um, you know, we've been doing that for, I guess it's been just about two years now. That's awesome. But yeah, it, are it, you works only out, it works out really well. Just, you know, kind of a unique setup where we kind of have two shops in one on the weekends. And so it's, we, we kind of complement each other inventory wise and, um, yeah, it's, it's been a really cool setup that you don't hear a lot of people doing elsewhere across the country. Yeah, um, I'm getting some kind of choppy audio on my end, so I'm sure it's me. Uh, but I'm just letting you know, anybody out there, if you're listening to this on podcast, I apologize if there's some choppy audio. But uh, it's probably my internet connection recording this. So I, I totally own that. You mentioned the time that it takes to build up your inventory, sell cards, list them, all of that kind of stuff. Do you set like, okay, I'm going to do this a certain number of hours a week, a day. Do you block off time in your schedule to get everything done that needs to get done? 
Yeah, so the the shop, I'm only open noon to four on Saturday and Sunday afternoons. And so that's kind of it for kind of that brick and mortar presence is, is it's just that eight hours a week, four hours on Saturday, four hours on Sunday. The other stuff, it seems to work out really well for me because I'm an early riser. So a lot of times I'm up at 445, five o'clock in the morning. And that's just when I wake up. I don't think I've set an alarm for probably eight years. That's just wow. when I wake up. And so uh, the rest of my family doesn't wake up, uh, you know, at that time. And so I've usually got, you know, two to three hours before I have to start my day job or get go into my day job where I'm able to do a lot of that order filling, content creation, podcast editing, you know, all of that kind of stuff between that kind of five and seven ish window um, every morning. And so I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm an early riser. I'm able to do that and spend, you know, a decent amount of time every day and every week before the rest of the family even wakes up. And so that's when I get a lot of that kind of stuff done. Um, and then there's other times throughout, throughout the evening and, and that type of thing where I'll, I'll fill some more orders or I'll do some other stuff and that type of thing. Um, I, I've got my, my daughters involved a little bit in helping me sort from time to time and, and put some things in order for some of the stuff that I'll eventually list on sport lots. Um, they'll help me put things in number order and spend a little time and we'll talk and sort and do some of those types of things. So that helps out a little bit too. Um, but yeah, I, I try to avoid um, doing card related stuff during kind of the, the peak, especially during the school year from, you know, three to seven or so when they're getting home from school and we're doing homework and eating dinner and doing all of that kind of stuff. But a lot of my stuff gets done early morning, kind of, you know, between five and 7 a.m. So I want to bring up something you've you've talked about before on your show. And by the way, Wax Pack, Wax Pack Hero, I keep saying it, Wax Pack Hero on everywhere you can get podcasts. Go listen to Mike. Uh, you'll enjoy it for sure. And again, different take on the hobby than me. But but you we have a lot of similarities. You love vintage, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're a vintage guy, I think, at heart. You've built some vintage sets using this sustaining hobby you know, method, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've gone all the way back at this point, um, from the mid nineties when I stopped, I've gone all the way back from getting all of the, the complete top sets from the mid nineties, all the way back through, I just wrapped up a couple months ago, the 67 top set. And so I was just kind of working my way back through the seventies. And, you know, once I, especially once I started to get to those early 70s sets where there was still high numbers from, from 73 on back, I mean, adding all of those high numbers or being able to fill out all of those high numbers in the early 70s. And then even back to 67, the last card I got that I needed was the, the Seaver rookie in 67, all paid for just with the profits from these things. Like that, that was just so fun to, to continue to go back and, and build out these sets. Um, just use, use some sales from, from May and June to, to purchase a huge collection of uh, 59 through 62 um, uh, big lots of those. I think there was maybe um, 1,400, 1,500 cards or something from, from 59 to 62 that I was able to get some really nice starter sets, including some high numbers and that type of thing. I think I ended up paying about 75 cents a card, maybe, including the high numbers that were that were in there um, on average. But again, that huge lot, some great starter sets for those, for those late, you know, 59 to 62, 
all paid for with with some of my sales and profits from from other cards that I've been buying and reselling. So yeah, so adding adding these vintage um, and building these vintage sets has been a, a huge a huge piece of what I've been enjoying through this whole process as well. So yeah, it's not just just modern stuff, but it's it's this vintage stuff too that I've been able to to continue to to work towards and and fill out sets and build sets and that type of thing. I know you're not a set builder, but I, I actually I still am. enjoy that that piece of history. I have turned into a set builder a little bit. So a lot of people may or may not know this, but you know, I collect Hall of Famers and all that for sure. But I started um I have all the way back to 73 every year since now to 73. I'm looking forward to I usually buy my 2022 top set at the national because they usually come out factory set form uh a week or two before the national and so I'll, I'll be picking one of those up at the show most likely so i love collecting sets i love having the entire set there's just something satisfactory about man i've got every card that they made that year for the flagship product right and so the, i i love that and so then i went back and i did 1960 which is my favorite year i, I built the 60 top set okay and i i did that through buying lots you know uh and then the high numbers and all that kind of stuff. I And the good thing is I already had all the Hall of Famers. I just needed the uh, the commons, basically, and yeah, semi-stars, yeah. you know, non-Hall of Famer guys. And, and so that made it a little more palatable financially to do that. Uh, then I did 65 because I love that set. And then I just recently, um, I'm, I only need like two cards to finish the 1970 top set. And okay. so I'm not doing them in any order other than if I, like the reason I did 70 was John Newman had bought a collection and he had a whole lot of really nice examples. And I bought them all from, I, I said, I'll, I'll buy all of them. I need these, you know? And so I did that and, and that started me on this and I'm like, okay, I've, I'm so OCD. I'm like, well, I've got to finish it now. And then, you know, just started adding other stuff. I, I still need a few cards for that actually more than two. I think I need two commons and a few more hall of famers, but I'm, I'm pretty close on that set. Cool. Um, and so I've enjoyed that. Honestly, it, it becomes a little mundane, especially on the high number stuff. And you've probably experienced, you're like, pay, I'm paying how much for who? Like, yeah. Who's this guy? Why am I paying twenty dollars or whatever it might be for a high number card? You're like, what? That doesn't feel good, but it's. I need. I want the set. You know that that drives more than the. I, I'm more excited to get the set complete than I am angry that the card's so expensive. If that makes sense. That yeah, that really hit me with the '67 set because that yeah. last series, man, those cards are pricey even for the commons. But again, that goes back to it bothered me less knowing that. I was turning in, uh, I was turning in 2018 cent, 2015 to 2022 base and insert cards from sport lots into those sixties high numbers. Right. And, and there's something about that, that made it a little, little more palatable to be able to, to spend that 20, 25, $40 for a, a common 67 high number or whatever it was, um, knowing that I was turning in and, these other these other base and insert cards into that that those funds that I was using to buy that it just it just makes it a little more palatable makes it a little more enjoyable for me um, knowing I'm I'm consolidating essentially consolidating right two to three thousand 
of these base and insert cards into five or six or 10 of, of these vintage high numbers that I needed for the set. Um, a little bit more than that eventually to get that, to get that siever that I used to sure. finish off the set. Yeah. And, and the, the difference between us is you, you have this sustainable hobby model. I'm a, I just use discretionary funds to yep. fund my hobby. Yep. And, you know, we all have choices in how we do that. And what you said earlier, I could not agree with more, which is make sure all your bills are paid, make sure you're saving for retirement, make sure you're putting money away for your kids to go to college. All, all of that happens before I get to spend any hobby dollars. Like I make yep. sure all of that's taken care of first and foremost. And that, you know, cause that's the way my wife, we always agreed that, okay, as long as everything else is taken care of, you can do your hobby. And, and the reason she loves the vintage part is she knows that that's a pretty fair, I don't want to use the word investment, a fair allocation of capital. Sure. Meaning if I needed to, I could sell everything I have behind me tomorrow and come out pretty okay. You know what I mean? Meaning not just break even, but I'd, I'd be in the green quite a bit on stuff that I've bought over the years, stuff I bought at the right time, stuff I bought long ago. So she knows that that's just the truth of it. And even if we see economic, well, we are in an economic recession, but I'm just saying if we see the hobby kind of falter a little bit, vintage just doesn't drop like a rock. It doesn't crater. And so there's some, she feels like, okay, we're not just literally throwing the money away, you know, into something that's going to be worthless. So she, that's a lot more, uh, she's more agreeable to that for that reason. So, my hobby budget changes literally month to month because um, my income is variable. And yep. so I don't have a salary. And so I have an amount of money I'm typically making a month, but there can be months I make a lot more months. I make a lot less. And so my hobby budget will vary accordingly. I don't think I've ever really talked about this um, because so many people are on a fixed budget of, I spend a hundred dollars a month, $500 a month, whatever that number is. And you can have a great hobby experience no matter what that number is. I truly yep. believe that. Uh, you don't have to be buying high-end stuff, you know. Uh, the people that buy high-end stuff is because they can afford high. Everybody would want high-end stuff, most likely, if they could afford it. It's it's about where you are uh, in your financial journey. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, that's yeah, I think that's so huge, right? And and it, I mean, at the end of the day, my hobby budget is also variable. Because it depends on how much I I sell that month, right? And how much right. how much extra funds are in my PayPal or my um, my business checking account from from those sales that last month. But I think that I think that's so huge. And and again, it comes back to something we talked about earlier. You, you've got to en you've got to enjoy that buying and selling aspect to do to approach the hobby the way that I approach it. And if you don't enjoy it, approaching it the way that you approach it is just as valid and just as, as great, right? Because you wouldn't enjoy it if you were having to spend the time buying and selling the way that I, I buy and sell. And that's a, that's a huge part. At the end of the day, we want to enjoy both the cards that we're getting and the process that we're using to acquire them. Right. And, and that can right. vary so significantly. And it doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have to be high dollar. I, I, I focus primarily my inventory is primarily focused on low to mid end stuff, right? I've got probably a hundred thousand 25 cent to a dollar cards at the shop, 
that people go through. And I've got customers that go and they spend hours every weekend digging through those those 25 cent to dollar boxes, filling up 800 count boxes full of of stars and um, cards from their favorite teams that that they enjoy. And there's kids that come in and and even this last weekend that came in and bought, you know, they're buying four, five, six, ten dollars worth of base and insert cards of stars of their favorite players, and they're having a blast finding them and saying, "Dad, look at this one," or you know, "Hey, they, I've, I've never seen this one before." And they're having tons of fun doing that type of stuff, um, even at the the twenty five cent to to a couple dollar a card, you know, range of things, and so they're having just as much fun as the folks next door picking up the, the 500, $600,000 PSA 10 of, of whoever it is that, that they're looking at it, that, that the uh, main LCS, you know, across the, the hall there. So it, there's, there's opportunities for everybody, both the types of cards that you enjoy at whatever price point you're finding enjoyment out of using whatever process to find and acquire those cards that, that you're enjoying along the way. And I think that's one of the things that makes the hobby so great. Uh, totally. Uh, there's no exclusivity there. You know, everybody can be included in the hobby at that, at those various uh, levels. You mentioned, you know, getting, a kid that piles up six, 10, $20 worth of cards and you get that 20 bucks. Do you immediately go, okay, this is going to turn into a 67 high number. Or do you think, what do I want to spend this $20 that I, or whatever? Do you, do you, do you have like stuff you're going, okay, I need to build up this much money because I'm targeting this next card for my PC kind of thing. Yeah. I, so I approach it kind of like, I like to have a certain amount of cash reserves ready to go depending on what collection might walk into the shop or what I might find on Facebook marketplace or whatever that I, I need to be able to have, have cash ready to go for whatever walks through the door. Right. So I like to have a, a certain amount of cash ready to go for that. I like to have a certain amount ready to go in, in the business checking account um, for some of those bigger collections that, that come in or that I, that I get approached with um, recently had somebody from town here that was moving out of state and, was going to be kind of downsizing when they moved and wasn't going to have near the space for what they had. And he approached me with a, a pretty, it was three pickup trucks worth of, of cards that he approached me. If it was interested, if I wanted to, to snag from him and I did, and I needed to have a, a decent amount of, of cash on hand or, you know, in the bank account ready to, to go um, to, to be able to pick up those cards. And so I, I do have kind of targets for making sure that if I, do get that big collection that comes comes my way once or twice a, a year that I'm ready to go for that. Um, but then it's kind of like once I'm once I've got that those those reserves on hand ready to go, then it's kind of what where do I want to go next, right? Like I was kind of planning for the Seaver. I was planning for my Nolan Ryan rookie when I needed to pick that one up. Uh, my uh, Dr. J rookie when I was working on that basketball set. Um, some of those bigger cards like that. Um, you know, I was, I was kind of planning for where I wanted to go next and kind of have a, kind of a want list of some of the bigger cards that I want to be ready for, um, you know, over the, the next several years. But like you were talking about, I think not too long ago, patience is key. I don't have, I think you were just talking about even earlier today when I was listening, right. You're going to the national and, and you have your list of cards, but if you don't see it for the price that you want to pay it, you're going to be patient. And I'm kind of that same way as, I know that I know what I want to be working towards, but I don't 
I'm, I'm in this for the next 50 years or whatever, right? Like yeah. I don't necessarily need to have that, that card or, or check those off, off right away. And so um, I do have, so that's a long answer for yes, I've got kind of a strategic plan for some of the things that I want to keep working towards. Um, but I don't necessarily have that down to every sale, knowing that I'm going to set aside X percent of every sale to go towards that, that piece, if Fair that enough. makes sense. Oh, no, it totally makes sense. And I, and I love how you think about that. Um, yeah, I'm, like you said, I mentioned there's some key vintage cards that I'm looking to hopefully pick up at the national. And yet if I don't, I don't, you know, uh, after 40 years, I've learned that it's a marathon, not a sprint. I've said that many times it's, and it's fun to wait, which yep. sounds weird. So I mean, like, it's okay to wait. Like it's like the mindset of, especially like my kids and my kids are in their twenties. So this generation of right now, like I got to have it right now. And I'm like, no, you, you really don't like, it's okay. And as a vintage guy, you really have to be patient because sometimes the cards you, you kind of get priced out a little yeah. bit. And so that's been true for me. And I just wait and Oh, lo and behold, prices are coming back where it's getting a little bit more reasonable. And, and for me, especially it's the, it's the, I, again, I only have so much money that I'm taking to the national or anything, you know, all the time. And it's like, I can't just buy everything now, even if I wanted to. Sure. Right. And I don't know that I would enjoy it if I had unlimited funds won the lottery, so to speak, and could just spend so much money on cards. So it's so funny to hear you talk about this. And I think for some people out there, this might be, you know, Hey, that's the ticket I'm looking for to be able to, because you can look at it as a stepping stone. Now I can afford things that I can't out of my discretionary. Like it can be a hybrid, right? You can use some discretionary funds and you can say, hey, maybe I could sell off some things that I don't care as much about, hopefully for a profit and be able to turn that into, you know, something else. People ask me all the time, Mike, why don't you sell some stuff and buy that, buy the, buy a mantle 52 tops or whatever. And the answer is, Cause I don't buy stuff that I don't want in my, in my collection. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't just buy bulk, you know, Ty does, you know, yeah. for bench clear. And that's what we do with him, with gold or not uh, with uh, chasing cardboard. For example, like we're going next week to look at a collection, by the way, you'll get a kick out of this, Mike, 6 million cards, <laughs> 6 million, it's one. an entire house. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like I'm going with him just, probably to laugh the whole time. Like, are you kidding me? You know, yeah. like that has zero appeal to me. Like it just look to, I just look at it and go all that time. I'd rather be playing golf, you yeah. know, or whatever. And, but I get, it's not that it won't be fun to look through them, but then I have to go, I have to list them. And like, if I had to do all this, so that makes me, like you said, you got to enjoy all those aspects of it. To me, it feels like, ah, that's a, that's a lot. Yeah. And so, but if you had a hybrid approach, I think if you kind of, you don't have to sell necessarily full time or you can do it as a, as a side hustle, so to speak, and just do it with some extra time. Don't necessarily feel like, oh my gosh, I got to list this many items this week or put yourself under any type of pressure and just kind of sell some extra stuff to be able to upgrade your collection or get other things that you may not otherwise with your discretionary budget be able to afford. Right. So I think those can work really well together if the person has the right mindset. Yeah. If you're disciplined, that's, that's the, the perfect mindset. You know, when I bought out the shop 
in 2020, that was about a million cards worth of inventory that I, that I bought out and about six to 700,000 of it was unsorted. It was essentially just piles of collections that he had bought over the years as he had been operating. And that's kind of how I approached it is I didn't put this pressure on myself to, I have to get through this in a month or whatever. It was, you know, if I'm at the shop, I'll snag a couple boxes and start going through it. You know, if I've got some extra time in the morning or in the evening as we're watching shows with the family or whatever on TV, I'll grab a box and I'll start flipping through it. Um, but I didn't put that pressure on myself to like have to get through it, have to get it all listed and turned around in like a, a moment's notice or, or right away. Or, you know, I, I kind of approached it with this is so many cards that it's just going to take me a while to work my way through it. And I'll just approach it that way. And um, that that took that pressure off, you know, um, I was still generating enough, you know, funds along the way to, to kind of replenish the the bank account that I had used to um, to purchase the big collection and that type of thing. And so um, I didn't have that financial pressure because I wasn't going into debt. It was all profits that I used to to make that that buyout. And so I didn't have that extra pressure on I've got to sell this right away because I, I stole money from our savings account or I went into to debt to be able to buy this. Um, it just created so much financial freedom to be able to just enjoy that process of looking, working my way through it, having fun going along the way. And, and um, it, it just adds so much more, you know, for me. Yeah. Do you think if if you had had the pressure either put on by your spouse, by your situation that you may have put yourself in, that that would have sucked some of the joy out of it? Oh, I think I think so a ton, right? I think I think if I was trying to operate and do this buying and selling, and I was doing it from a position where I was um, stretching myself financially, either from um, the the use of day to day funds or uh, going into debt or those types of things to be able to to kind of cover the cost of what I was buying, I wouldn't enjoy that one bit. Um, I, I don't think, and I go to even the point of when I, when I bought my 86 Fleer Jordan rookie, one of the cards I'd always wanted, right? Um, if I would have had to spend money from savings or my paycheck to buy that, I would be second guessing my decision all the time, right? If I would have been using those same funds to buy the, the Seaver rookie or some of these other cards that are four figures or more, right? I'd be second guessing my purchase decisions of, man, I should have been putting that money into the, the kid's college fund, or I should have been, um, you know, doing something else with it. Uh, I would be second guessing that all the time. And I wouldn't enjoy that card the, the, to the near the extent that I enjoy it, knowing that it was completely paid for with card profits. Right. right. And so that's just the way that, that my mind works because I, I view my paycheck money as I want to max out my IRA. I want to max out my 401k. We paid off our house, like you completely paid off our house. All of these types, like that's what the where I want to use my my paycheck money for. Um, preparing for the kids' college, you know, all of those types of things. I don't I don't want to have to second guess my hobby versus those those Real things life. that impact long term life decisions, yeah. right? And so that's just the way that my brain works. And so um, I want to use that money for that stuff. And I can enjoy my hobby 100% knowing that my hobby is paying for itself. 
So if someone's listening to this and they're saying to themselves, you know what, I, I might like to try to do this a little bit, um, maybe dip their toe in the pool, so to speak, try to use a dual model or whatever, a hybrid model like we're talking about, or just start building a self-sustaining hobby to where eventually you become fully self-sustaining. What are some tips and tricks that you would tell somebody, okay, I'm going to try this. What does Mike tell me I should do? That yeah, mic, yeah. not this mic. <laughs> I, there's a couple things that I would say, right? Is is the first thing that I would say is it's okay to test the waters and start small. You know, I, the the first cards that I was buying were, like I said, cards from the quarter box, dollar box, that type of stuff. The first collection that I bought to resell was like a ninety dollar, hundred dollar collection, right? That I was able to to work my way through and turn into two to three hundred dollars, right? So, it's okay to start small to experiment a little bit, see if you do enjoy it, right? See if, see if you get, if you're passionate about it, like I am, or if you hate the thought of sorting, listing, packing and shipping, right. And, and just to not jump in with a five or six or thousand dollar, $3,000 collection and sink those types of funds when you don't know if you're going to even enjoy it at all. You, it's okay to start small and work your way up. That's, that's one thing. And then the other thing that I, I would suggest people think about is how much time and effort are you willing to, to put into it? Because I can buy base and insert cards, super cheap, you know, a penny, a card, half a cent, a card, and I'm okay with spending the time to sell them on sport lots, but you might not be right. And so, but there's other alternatives, a, a site like ComC where you can take, you know, your dollar to 20, $30 cards. All you've got to do at that point is put them in penny sleeves ship them to com C. And as long as you're okay, paying a little bit of a processing fee and a little more of a sales commission, your manual um, work that's needed is next to nothing. Right. And so right. there's alternatives like that, where you can, if you're good at buying collections, you enjoy that, that purchase aspect of it, but don't want to do the, the listing and, and shipping work. You can do uh, use a site like com C to you make your purchase and then send them all to ComC, and then they will do all of the scanning, listing, shipping, and all of that stuff for you for the the commission that's associated with that. So there's there's multiple opportunities for that, depending on what aspects you enjoy and how much time you're interested in putting into it. So um, start small, test things out, see what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, um, experiment with a few of the different selling platforms, ComC, Sportlots, eBay, etc. And, and see where where things land for you to see if it's something that you want to continue to scale up and grow or if it's something that you say, you know what, this just isn't for me. I'm going to figure out a, a budget for myself for the hobby and, and just focus on on making purchases. Um, and, and like we said before, we've been saying this whole time. Either way is fine. You know, no matter what is fine, depending on what you in, enjoy the most and um, what you're going to have the, the most fun going through and 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 doing along the way awesome well mike uh as we finish up i just want you to tell everybody you know where all they i know you're on a lot of different platforms besides your podcast tell everybody how they can connect with you maybe somebody has some questions about this that they may want to ask you directly well how can they get a hold of you yeah sure so everything's kind of centered on the my kind of original content source at waxpackhero.com i started with a blog um, I've also got the podcast, the Wax Pack Hero Sports Card Minute, that is available kind of anywhere that that podcasts are are found. Um, you can send me an email, waxpackhero at gmail.com. 
And you can also find me on, um, on TikTok at Waxback Hero, Instagram at Waxback Hero, and as the the name here on the on the screen says, on Twitter is probably where I'm most active at the Mike Summer on Twitter. I'd love to to answer any questions you have, um, you know, anything like that. I'm I'm happy to help, you know, helping other people figure out ways to do this and and learn and come back into the hobby. That's one of the reasons I started doing content. So I'm happy to answer any questions that people have. That's awesome. And for the Twitter, it's at Mike. S O M M E R not yep. summer like the season, but summer S O M M E R. So check him out and uh, you guys will enjoy his podcast. He does a lot of different things and it's great. So Mike, thanks for being on the show today, man. I really appreciate it. And a lot of insight and, you know, no matter what realm of the hobby you're in, this is a model that, that might make some sense for you. So check it out. Think about it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. You bet. All right, guys, uh, we'll see you next week for another episode. And for now, just, hey, no matter whether it's sustaining or whatever, enjoy the hobby and keep collecting.